So good morning. Thank you for joining uh, us on the Marianne Gebauer podcast. And I am joined by Dr. York Shung. Thank you, Dr. Shung, for joining me today to chat. Morning, Marianne. It's great to be here again. So Dr. York Shung, this has been a big week. Uh, you are speaking on behalf of the judicial review that's going on in the BC Supreme Court. Uh, you are a former UBC professor of surgery, former vascular surgeon at BGH Hospital, and now you're embroiled in a judicial review that is challenging Dr. Bonnie Henry. Can you bring me up to speed on what has happened this last week? Yeah, I'll be happy to. You know, so much has happened. Um, maybe what I'll do for those who have not been following this very carefully, um, we have just finished two weeks of being in the uh, BC Supreme Court um, as a group of petitioners. There are three petitions involved against um, Bonnie Henry, represented by the Attorney General's uh, office. And so what has happened in the first week is that our lawyers, and so we have a legal team of um, two lawyers and an articling student who come to the law courts every day Plus we have another lawyer who um, is residing not in Vancouver, but is in attendance every day. Plus we have a solicitor behind the scenes. So we have a big legal team um, that has been in court for the last two weeks. In addition to that, the third group of petitioners, since our lawyers represent two groups of petitioners, one group is, is us. And so we're the doctors and nurses. The other group are a group of nurses who also have religious reasons um, as to why they did not take or observe the mandate. And the third group of petitioners is represented by the JCCF lawyers. And again, they're a group of healthcare administrators, nurses, and doctors, and they have a, a, they have a, a different um, complaint. Um, so what happened in the first week is that our lawyers went first for the first two and a half days, followed by the JCCF lawyers. Um, then at the end of the first week, what happened was that the JCCF um, team is represented by two lawyers. Unfortunately, one of their lawyers was sick and not in attendance at all. Um, and so the attorney general's office, in other words, the government, um, seek to, um, in adjournment, or seek to prolong it. Um, and basically by saying, let's wait until the other JCCF lawyer is healthy and hear all of her um, complaints before we proceed. And they, in other words, they wanted to extend this for at least another two weeks. What it really means is that they need that extra time to actually respond to our oral submissions. Um, which our lawyers complained about, they objected to it. And uh, I would say gratefully, the judge agreed with our side. And so um, we were to continue this week. And so what happened this week was that the um, attorney general or the government's lawyers have been in court presenting their counter arguments to our arguments um, since Tuesday um, to Friday. And then on Friday, our, our lawyers had the opportunity to reply um, to their issues. And so 
Um, it's been an interesting time because whatever we have said, the Attorney General's office has tried to discredit that. And I can give you a number of examples of how they have tried to discredit it. Um, in our reply, um, the judge disallowed probably about half of the um, comments um, in our reply. And the reasons is because um, when the Attorney General's team was up and they were discrediting us, um, how they discredited us was that, uh, first of all, they, I would say, um, the nasty word is smeared. The probably the more polite term is discredit. Um, and so they discredited, dis attempted to discredit all of the petitioners in our lawsuit, including myself. And so when it came to discrediting me, um, basically their comment, they, you know, they um, recognized the fact that I had been a vascular surgeon for 34 years, professor of surgery at UBC. The way they discredited me was essentially he's 67 years old and he is now retired. In other words, he's an old guy. And so we moved on to the next person. The next person was, in fact, um, one of our physician members who um, is both a family physician and practices uh, child psych uh, psychiatry um, in a very high risk group of um, adolescents uh, who, are, who are prone to uh, have suicidal uh, tendencies. And the way he has been doing that is that he's on a contract, but he has been doing all of that work virtually. They discredited him by saying that even though all of his work was done virtually, it is possible that at some point he may have to come into the hospital for a face-to-face -face meeting. So because of that, the PHO was justified in firing him from his contract. Besides, he still has his private practice and he's doing okay. The way they discredited the third petitioner, and the third petitioner is a, a registered nurse, 27 years experience, the charge nurse, or a small hospital, well, medium-sized hospital in BC. And the way they discredited is that, well, she managed to find another job. You know, um, it's in the film industry, not in nursing, but she's okay too. And so it was, I was amazed that um, they would be uh, so blunt um, in, 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 a, in a tactic. Um, and so that was quite surprising. Now, when they, uh, because our, our, our um, suit is really over two issues. We're asking the judge to rule on the reasonableness of number one, that there is still an emergency in British Columbia, which allows the provincial health officer, gives her all these powers to do all these things to all of the unvaccinated healthcare workers. Um, and number two, is it still reasonable to keep unvaccinated healthcare workers who are likely the healthiest um, and the probably highly experienced out of the workforce at a time when all these mandates have been dropped in Canada, around the world? Um, and so their response to it was actually um, kind of like trying to hoodwink the judge. Number one, when you're talking about, uh, is there still an emergency? And so 
In order for the um, provincial health officer to declare an emergency, they have to fulfill two of four criteria. And in the two of the four criteria is this term called regional event. And so it struck me that nobody has a definition of what an emergency is. Similarly, nobody has a definition of what a regional event is. And so they were using um, terms like catastrophic, um, never happened before, unpredictable, you know, you know, it's it's kind of like atmospheric storm, um, terms like that, that um, on the face of it sounds horrible and you think you really know, but in fact, because there is no definition for it, you don't really know. Um, and then they introduced, and they didn't really introduce it. This is what is actually written down. These are the requirements. There has to be um, in a regional event, at which point our lawyers pointed out a regional event is really declared by the regional health officer, not the provincial health officer. The provincial health officer is actually overstepping her responsibilities by interfering with the regional health officer. In other words, um, if it's in the VCH region, then the VCH health officer should be one making that declaration and not the provincial health officer. But they were arguing the definition of a health officer and Bonnie Henry is also a um, is also a regional health officer in addition to being the provincial health officer. Um, and our side, you know, because we already had our chance to say what we wanted to say, we said it's like she's overstepping her boundaries. But their counter argument is that, well, she is also the, a regional health officer for all regions. Um, and then there, there is um, a, a term where um, if the provincial health officer deems something to be a health hazard can call this an emergency. Well, the, the fundamental question is, what is the health hazard? By implication, are we, the unvaccinated, a health hazard if we went back to work? And that is what they were trying to portray. And so they struggled with the issue of an emergency. And I have some information to show you a little bit later on about um, how they tried to um, muddy up the waters in, in, their, in their description. Um, in terms of attacking the unvaccinated healthcare workers, um, they were using cherry-picked data, not recent data, but data related to um, the previous Delta strains where there are some papers that have said that, um, number one, hybrid immunity, which they were really you know, glomming onto, was better than natural immunity. And then they, they would um, bring that argument forward and say that everyone in the hospital has had the primary series and has also become sick. And so they all have hybrid immunity. And even though hybrid immunity, at least the vaccine part of it, wanes after probably three to six months and you have no immunity or lasting immunity from your vac vaccination, the vaccines were given over two years ago. By this time, there is no immunity from the vaccine. Your immunity is really your 
infection acquired immunity. In other words, you basically are comparing natural immunity to natural immunity at this point. Um, and so the way that they had altered things is that they have said the term waning effectiveness of which the attorney general lawyers actually, I suspect, do not know the term, what it actually means. And they're telling the judge what it means. So the judge is somehow he's thinking waning immunity. Does that mean you have waning immunity to uh, infectiousness, duration of disease, recovery time? And they're, they're saying, yes, judge, yes, yes, judge, yes, judge. But in fact, waning immunity is, um, uh, it just means whether you're, you're going to get sick or not, right? It has not, nothing to do with, you know, um, how many symptoms are reduced or anything like that. So it's clearly a way of um, confusing the judge uh, in these terms. And, they, you know, they actually, the attorney general lawyers actually went ahead and said that, you know, this um, vaccine-induced immunity never goes to zero. You, even you have a little bit, but a little bit is better than nothing. So that little bit plus your infection-acquired immunity makes you better than someone who only has natural immunity. So that's that, that has been their argument. Um, and so it has been very disappointing. And at, um, at some point, the, the judge was saying, well, you know, he, he started to ask some questions and in our, um, in our reply, because we get the final reply, if you like, which is limited to maybe about a couple of hours, we tried to straighten up all of those inconsistencies um, and explain to the judge, you know, about some of these things. But the judge um, accepted maybe only half of the comments that we put in for our reply. The others, which we had put in to try and clear up uh, the error as to you know what is what has been said is in fact is not accurate. And he was he basically said that you are case splitting. In other words, you are re-arguing what you had previously argued. So a lot of that was uh, not allowed. Um, and hence, that's the way the week ended. You know, uh, I think that um, um, overall, you know, I think our lawyers did a great job explaining our side of it. I think the attorney general lawyers did a good job too of muddying the waters completely. Um, and now it's unfortunately uh, going to be up to the judge to make a decision. What is going to happen is that the JCCF lawyers are coming back on December the 18th, I believe, for maybe um, no more than a week um, in court. Um, and I suspect the government government lawyers will also get a chance to rebut at that point. Um, I don't think the petitions are going to be separated. So I think that the judge will rule on all of the petitions um, together. And likely we're going to hear the judge's decision probably late January, early February next year. So that, that's 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 what's happened. So what? how do you think the judge will rule? You know, um, this is, I kind of feel sorry for him, you know? Um, this is such a huge responsibility for the judge. And I was, um, as I was in the court courtroom, I was trying to imagine myself being the judge and thinking about how, what will my decision be? And so I was wondering, how do judges go into this? Do they 
basically like stick their fingers in their ears and they blah, blah, blah. You know, they don't listen to anything. So you go in, you're completely unaware of this. Um, and so it's like, well, give me your arguments. You know, let's hear your arguments. Let's hear your arguments and I'll, I'll make a decision. Or are the judges like regular people and you can, it's unavoidable, you know, that you hear about these things. It, perhaps it's unavoidable that you've heard of um, somebody that you know of, let's say there's been vaccine injured as a result of this. Does that impact your ability or do you try and keep that completely separate? Because um, I think this is the dilemma for the judge. Uh, the dilemma is if I rule in favor of the unvaccinated healthcare workers, let's say we, we, um, we say that the emergency is over, and bring back the unvaccinated healthcare workers. How will it come back and bite me if there's an outbreak of disease amongst the unvaccinated healthcare workers? Um, you know, I don't want that on my career. I, I'm not going to do that. You know, or um, let's say I rule against the unvaccinated healthcare workers. Um, if the judge was let's say not living in the lower mainland or Victoria, and in fact lived in Northern BC. And he would understand more completely um, about the, the problems in um, our healthcare system and the hospitals, the smaller hospitals in Northern BC, where you have no staff, you're closing everything. Um, if he rules against the healthcare workers, is he only accelerating the decline in healthcare in BC by keeping these health, otherwise experienced healthy healthcare workers on the sidelines? Um, and so he could rule a third way. He could rule that the emergency is over and um, I'll leave it up to the PHO to figure out what they want to do. Perhaps the PHO will say, okay, it's over. But the decision to keep the unvaccinated healthcare workers out, she's going to delegate it to the hospitals. It's up to them to figure out what they want to do. So, you know, I, I feel the judge is in a, it's a difficult situation. This is a hugely important case, um, you know, being argued not on constitutional reasons, um, but being argued in the, in the sense that did the provincial health officer has she overstepped um, her responsibilities in calling this an emergency at this point? And is she justified in keeping the unvaccinated healthcare workers out? Really, at a time when our healthcare system is in, it seems like it's a perpetual crisis. Um, you know, you have heard reports today of uh, cancer patients. They feel that the number of cancer patients going to the US for their treatment, number one, is not enough because the government had anticipated sending 50 patients a week, whereas the only sent 12. And the number of patients still needing cancer care, had, by sending the patients to the States, we have not made a dent um, in the number of cancer cases. And so um, there, there is no good news and, you know, for the government regarding health care. Um, I, I don't know why they insist on keeping the unvaccinated healthcare workers out. Um, you know, we, we raised the issue that, um, well, the WHO, you know, has long said that this pandemic is over 
And the government lawyers actually admitted to the fact that Bonnie Henry previously had worked for the WHO, but at the same time, she does not need to follow what the WHO is doing. And yet, equally, she gets a lot of information from the WHO. So um, I don't know. I, I, I think this, um, this, it's ideology is what's happening. And I, I feel sorry for the judge that he's put in this situation, that he, but it, it hit, and he has to rule on a very, very important case. It is a very important case, but it's an unusual case because if you look at the rest of Canada, all the doctors and nurses are back. So what makes what makes BC an exception? So dangerous. Um, that's right. That's right. So um, the let, let me let me explain some. Let, let me share with you and your your viewers some of my uh, observations on why this case is so difficult to mm -hmm. argue overall. First of all, uh, it's a judicial review. In other words, um, there is no cross-examination uh, of expert witnesses, of um, the uh, petitioners like myself. Um, and I've, I understand that in other provinces, when you have a judicial review, number one, you have more than one judge. Uh, you can have maybe about, you can have three judges, an odd number. Uh, and number two, you are allowed for um, cross-examination of your expert witnesses. And so maybe this is kind of a budgetary issue in BC uh, that they don't allow that, We, you know, um, but it is what it is. The, the other aspect of it is that because it's a judicial review and you cannot rely on expert witnesses, essentially you have lawyers because the judge is a lawyer as well, or essentially lay people talking about medicine. And it's like literally the blind leading the blind. Um, you know, without an expert witness to basically explain the whole set, set the whole scenario for you, um, you have lay people trying to educate other lay people. And it, it's been very frustrating. And so um, so very simple terms like infection, um, transmission, um, infectivity, incubation periods, um, the terms that they are, when they use these terms, they are not using it according to the way that it's recognized medically, is what I'm saying. And so everyone, you know, has a different idea and they're trying to explain it uh, as a different idea. And that is very frustrating to actually listen to. Um, the other aspect of it is that when you are, and I, I can understand why the judge says I'm not going to rule on science, because really, there is no science behind all of the studies. And what I mean by that is that um, science is the pursuit of truth. It is not the truth. Um, and so you can get closer to the truth if you have scientific articles that are the least biased. Right, because if it's biased, you know um, your conclusions are going to be wrong, and so the the best studies to eliminate bias are the randomized controlled trials, and essentially, after the drug sponsored randomized controlled trials were stopped prematurely, because these are all experimental treatments, remember, and they were stopped prematurely to allow the controls to receive vaccines. So you have broken that separation 
and everybody is now vaccinated. There is no pure group of unvaccinated people. So when it comes to the question of number one, um, unvaccinated healthcare workers, how do they compare against vaccinated healthcare workers? There has never been one study that has ever done that. There has been billions of dollars spent around the world on vaccines, but nobody has done the study to pursue the truth in all of this. And so because you don't have a randomized controlled trial to actually answer that question, you have um, a whole bunch of scientific articles using a non-randomized style design to try and answer the question. And the problem with virtually all of those studies is that they are biased. And the way that they are biased is number one, um, the majority do not examine healthcare workers. Majority are examining population of people, which in our case may be kind of interesting, but it's not really relevant. Because in the population of people there, including very young people to very old people, the healthcare workers are in that middle group. So number one, it doesn't really apply to us. Number two, it's not randomized. You have the experience of the very young who largely don't get sick. And if they do get sick, they recover very quickly. And you mix it with the very old who are more prone to get sick and the more seriously sick. So depending on how many young people versus how many old people get into those studies, it's not a direct comparison at all. So the actual relevance of all that is in fact completely irrelevant. But those are the best studies, or they're, they're, they're not the best, they're the only available studies that are published. The other problem with lay people such as lawyers is that, um, and they're, they're arguing science or medicine in this case, they can't read or understand these papers. And so they can read a conclusion, concluding sentence perhaps, um, and the concluding sentence may be something either in favor of the vaccinated or maybe in favor of the unvaccinated. They do not understand the way that the, those studies were actually set up and designed. The majority of those studies, and they're, they're quoting things like, oh, judge, if, the pa if a paper has thousands and thousands of patients, it's true. Uh, and that is completely false. Uh, because it's the way that the study has been designed. Um, and so if you have thousands and thousands of patients, but you're comparing not apples to apples, and the judge, I believe, recognizes that, then your, your conclusion will be false. And so because um, media has been largely quiet, the effect in medical publishing um, houses is that they want to go with the flow and the go with the flow means pro-vaccine. And so even if your study demonstrates that um, people with natural immunity is actually superior to people with um, vaccine or even hybrid immunity, because in order to get that paper published, they will need to actually put in the final sentence saying, but vaccination is probably the way to go, which goes completely against what they're data actually shows. In other words, there is a massive publication bias in all medical journals that in order to actually get published, the authors have to put in that statement. So when it comes to, uh, to, to the lawyers, 
they're only taking out that summary statement that vaccination is still the way to go. So we were just interrupted. So we're back again uh, with Dr. York Shung. And um, Dr. Shung, uh, switching gears a little bit, but on the topic of data presented during this hearing, was there any compelling data that you, you would like to discuss? You know, that's a great question. And um, I think your audience may be interested in some of the um, data that was actually discussed. And if I can just share my screen. Now, can you see that graph? Yes. Okay. So this is a graph and it says seven day average of COVID-19 severe outcomes. And you can see that it's in three different colors. Blue are the hospitalizations. Green are the critical care admissions, so people going to ICU, and the red are deaths. And so if you take each one of them at a time, you can see that the time period starts from, um, essentially starts from March 2020. And that's when Bonnie Henry declared that there is a pandemic. Um, now let's just look at the blue first. And you can see that the blue goes up and down, but really peaks around January 2022 or just after. And that is the Omicron peak. And that refers to people going to hospital with Omicron. And you can see that after that is kind of a jagged um, bunch of little peaks, but the overall trend is downwards to September 2023, where there is a slight bump up. But again, the trend after that, and which we have no data for, again, goes downward. And similarly, for the green, which is critical care admissions, you can see that it sort of follows the blue, except it's quite flat, no matter how many hospitalizations, the number of people going to ICU remains largely the same. And the same thing is also seen with deaths. And so this is the graph that was presented um, in court. Um, and we have used it to basically show that there was a huge peak as a result of Omicron in terms of hospitalizations. But ever since then, the number of hospitalizations has been going down. There has been some ups and downs, just like any type of respiratory illness, but the overall trend is severely downwards. Um, in addition to that, critical care admissions, as well as deaths, is largely very flat towards the second half of this. That's how we have presented the data. How the um, government's lawyers interpret this is that they are only focused on the right-hand corner of the graph, primarily, and I would say only, hospitalizations, where they say that there is an uptick in hospitalizations um, in, in September. And so the October order is that the pandemic continues and we need to keep the unvaccinated healthcare workers out as a result in order to protect. And, and so th that's, that's the interpretation of it. Um, and they're using uh, terms like, if we don't do this, it will impact hospital capacity. And hospital capacity has been, even before the COVID pandemic, running about 110%. And by that, what I mean is that um, 
there are more patients coming to the hospital than the hospital actually has beds for. And so that results in um, things like hallway, hallway beds, very, very congested, long waits to get into the emergency room. A lot of that is, in fact, unrelated to COVID at all. And a lot of that is because of a, a, a description, if you like, called bed blocking. And by that, what I mean is that um, patients who are well enough to be discharged from hospital have nowhere to go. And that classification is called alternate level of care. At any one time, any BC hospital, 20 to 30% of the hospital beds are blocked by alternate level of care patients. There's nowhere to go. They can't go home. Uh, what they need is they need long-term care and there are no long-term care beds. So they just simply sit uh, in our hospitals waiting for a long-term care bed to come up. Meanwhile, sick patients who come into the hospital, there's nowhere for them to go. They just have to wait. The other aspect of it is that hospital capacity, meaning hospital beds, is an issue of funding as well as a primarily nursing staff. Um, funding, by and large, is not that much of an issue. The nursing staff is. And if anything, by keeping out, um, the official number is two to 3,000 um, unvaccinated healthcare workers, but the probably the likely number is that you have let go 10,000 or so um, uh, hospital uh, 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 hospital care workers, because, you know, they took early retirement and things, that is what decreases your overall capacity in the hospitals. And let me show you another thing. So this is one thing that they've argued about. And if I can, can you see this? Is this a different diagram mm -hmm. for you? Mm -hmm. Yep. No? Okay. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about wastewater analysis, which is a new way of analyzing um, the amount of COVID in the environment. And so they're oh, analyzing. Okay, one moment. We still have the same chart up, right? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Let me just... Can I just ask you a question about that last chart? Go right ahead. They, they made a case that there's an uptick in hospitalizations right now showing in September. But if I look back to September 2020, I look September 2021, September 2022, there's always been an uptick in September, maybe in the fall. So there's nothing extraordinary going on this September. Correct. And that's what our, our lawyers are arguing. There's nothing nothing really different than what is to be expected mm -hmm. in a respiratory virus flu season. Yes. This type of thing, right? Let me just go to one other graph that um, they have bandied around. And this is... This is the number of deaths. Um, so do you see this? It says... It um, says deaths within 30 days by underlying cause of death. Correct, correct. And you can see that there are three colors. There's a dark blue, and this is um, classified as COVID. You can see that there is a light blue, means as classified as non-COVID, these are the deaths. And you can see a gray where it says the uh, disease classification is still pending. So when this graph was presented, number one, you can see overall the total number of deaths um, 
by the combined height of the light blue and the dark blue, starting from, it looks like 2022 of April, going to October 2023, the overall trend is downwards. Um, in September and October 2023, most of the deaths are still unclassified as yet. But if you look at the dark blue, these are classified as COVID deaths from the left side of the graph to the right side of the graph. Clearly, what is you can see is that there is an overall trend is that it is downwards, right? So basically, what um, our lawyers have argued is that even COVID deaths over um, the last year uh, or more has been going downwards. So because of this, this these are government figures using government figures to basically show that there is no pandemic based on number of COVID deaths. The government lawyers turn around and they then argue about the uptick in the gray on the right-hand side. They are basically trying to persuade the judge that the judge should consider all of these deaths that are hitherto classified as undiagnosed as all of them being COVID deaths. And so they are saying that there is an increase in COVID deaths, whereas in fact, they're unclassified. And if, there, if it follows the, the trend of the overall separation after adjudication into COVID and non-COVID deaths, it will undoubtedly, it'll come out that the majority of these were non-COVID deaths. And so th those are just examples of putting up one type of data um, and having two different interpretations that, that are diametrically opposed. Um, and so uh, I'll share with your audience um, wastewater analysis. And you can see that they have sampled in five areas, two in the Fraser area and one in VCH. So in Fraser, it's in Annesis Island, Northwest Langley. VCH, it's on Long, it's on Iona Island, which is Richmond. Um, Lionsgate, as well as Lulu Island, which is also Richmond. Um, and so you can see that what they are measuring for is they're measuring for evidence that there is COVID-19 in the wastewater, right? Um, and so you can see the overall trend, in fact, in every one of these five communities is that the ability to pick up COVID in the wastewater is going down in every one of these communities. So what I've said is that um, our lawyers have used this to basically show the judge again that, um, uh, look, judge, um, the government talks about wastewater analysis. This is their data on wastewater analysis. You can see that COVID in wastewater is going down in all of their samples. Um, the flip side of it is that the government argues that wastewater analysis, so what they're arguing is that they're not arguing the data on the chart. What they're arguing is that wastewater analysis is a good way of following COVID. We continue to follow this. The provincial health officer uses all of this data to make up um, her mind about this. The provincial health officer has expertise in this area. Therefore, you must believe her. And so that's how the government argues this chart. Um, and so, anyway, um, so those, those are the three charts, you know. And now that, 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 um, that data, 
is pretty hard to defend. Were they not a little bit horrified to see these charts come up? Because there's no compelling argument based on wastewater data that there's an issue. It, it just well, affirms your, your case. Well, in fact, if you look at all three graphs and all three graphs are in the record and the record is in fact provided by them, we have gone into the data that they have put in and we have extracted this and said, this is your data. We yeah. are using your figures to basically show you that there in fact is no pandemic, all right? And so, um, you know, we, we have to send this to them in advance um, so that, you know, they, they have some time to consider a response. And then in court, then we're arguing in, in, an, in an oral submission, the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's interesting to actually hear the fact that, um, well, maybe I'll just, I'll segue a little bit into, um, into some of my observations, you know, about um, what it takes to be a lawyer. And so, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, let's it's, take it's, the screen share off. Okay, let me take this off. And, and, um, and then, yes, what, yeah, I'm curious to know, what do you think of lawyers? You've spent a couple of weeks observing. Yeah, yeah you know, think? you know, it's, um, it's an eye opener, you know, and uh, I, I, for me as a doctor, um, I come from a different place. I come from a place of truth. Um, when patients come to see me, I expect them to tell me honestly what's really wrong with them. And then I will go through and make a diagnosis and I will tell them honestly what I really think is going on. And now the art of medicine is um, telling someone bad news and how much you want to sort of roll out at a time. But, you know, um, we're not going to lie. Um, you know, we're going to tell you what, what your problem really is. And so in a way, I thought that law would be trying to seek the truth in a trial like this. And it's really up to the judge to try and determine what is really going on. It seems to me that um, one side is trying to explain their truth. The other side may know about it, may feel that that is the truth. However, it's more important to win than to allow the truth to come out. And so I liken it to a, you know, um, uh, a football expression that was often bandied about, you know, when they had deflate gate and Tom Brady and the footballs and things. And some of the commenters were saying, um, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Um, and so it, it, that that's the sense I sort of have, you know, um, and I, I think that um, one of the terms that was used very frequently uh, throughout the two weeks of hearing is that um, your choices have consequences. And so when they're talking about the unvaccinated who chose not to receive a jab, well, that's your choice. But, you know, you have to realize that there are consequences to your choice, which you know, means losing your job, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I also think at the same time that uh, that can also be applied to the lawyers because, um, you know, your choice to be a lawyer representing the government also has consequences. You know, um, I don't know how they feel um, if they feel completely differently, uh, but it's a job, it's a paycheck. And so they have to do their job to, to defend the government, even if they don't believe it. It's the amoral equivalency 
of a doctor who probably should have known better about the vaccines and went ahead and injected all his patients. So the scenario comes up in that, you know, New Zealand, there are a lot of um, physicians who received exemptions that they themselves did not need to be vaccinated, but they turned around and vaccinated all their patients. And I think that's completely amoral. And probably you're just seeing the same type of amorality amongst different professionals. Yeah, it must be very discouraging. You know, you, you're, you, yeah. because there yeah. is that purity. The intention here is to seek truth, but obviously right. that's not the intention. Correct, of, correct. Of yeah, yeah. Very. Let me, let me, let me, let me show you, um, um, viewers, one other thing that, that may be of interest to them. And so the question of, um, um, you know, we don't have good data anymore about um, unvaccinated versus vaccinated workers. I said there's no randomized controlled trial. It's ever been done, you know. And so um, here's um, my freedom of information request requesting that the government produce the evidence that unvaccinated healthcare workers actually caused a problem in terms of infection to staff or hospitals, or to staff or patients in hospitals. And so that was my request in February of 2022. And you can see that this is my freedom of information request. And I'll show you the actual result of that. And so, Can you see this? Yes. It says, although a thorough search was conducted, no records were located in response to your request. The ministry indicated they do not hold such specific information and data. Your file is now closed. So when Bonnie Henry comes out and says, I know that unvaccinated healthcare workers can infect um, staff and patients, what is she actually basing this on? The government has no records. Now, you know, when we introduce a freedom of information um, summary like this, that in fact, the government has no um, data on this, um, their response would be, Bonnie Henry has access to extra data, and which and they do not, produce right um and you know it's 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 based on this it's based on all the other other considerations so they will spin this even though this is pretty much black and white showing that in fact there are no outbreaks caused by the unvaccinated healthcare staff in the hospitals up to the period of february 2022 because this after is, that this is, this is astounding it is astounding. But, but it is this, astounding. But this pulled up as a document during the case or during yes, the review? This is this is part of the record. This is, this in is it. remarkable. No it records is. were located. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and so how can she actually say this in public that it's in fact the opposite and that the unvaccinated healthcare workers are causing these outbreaks, or she's concerned that they may cause um, you know, infection throughout the hospital, when in fact you have actually absolutely no evidence of this whatsoever. Um, and so that's what I mean. It's it's kind of disappointing, um, especially 
for the lawyers defending the government. They've seen these, they've seen these freedom of information, um, you know, letters. They've seen the data, mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know, you know. Uh, what what did the opposing lawyer say to this? I mean, how do you even defend this? Well, they they basically um, ignored a lot of these, um, you know, piece of information that we put forward. This uh, is probably the best local information in BC because we don't have a randomized controlled trial. This specifically asks about healthcare workers, the unvaccinated healthcare workers in BC. Um, yeah. And so if you have absolutely no, <laughs> you have no records to show that, uh, I don't even, you know, one or two were the cause of any outbreaks, um, how can you go on and, you know, continue and continue to say that they're a source, they're, you know, they're a source of um, carrying bugs, they're dirty, you know, they're infectious, don't let them in. Um, it's it's ridiculous. It, it really is. Well, it's, it's, it smells of propaganda nothing oh, but yeah. propaganda based on no facts no science right yeah. but it's affected maybe ten thousand people's lives in bc well it's affected more than ten thousand people because you know it's ten thousand people with families, families it's yeah. ten thousand um, people that could be helping thousands of british Columbians. the impact is it's enormous you know um BC currently is the only province in, in Canada that still has this outrageous things. Nova Scotia previously did, and they changed their tune. They have allowed the unvaccinated healthcare workers to come back, but they have kicked the can down the road and that they have basically said, well, we're going to leave it up to the hospitals. You know, even if that happened in BC, that's not a bad idea. I think that some hospitals would be desperate to have healthcare workers come back. I think other hospitals, if they feel that they're flush, you know, with healthcare workers, they want a virtual signal, you know, they want to do these things, go ahead. But I think that even that would be, even that would be good. Um, talking yeah. about lawyers for a second, I must say that, you know, I have felt that, um, well, I've certainly have discovered how, and it's an oxymoron, how moral our lawyers are. Um, and then, you know, they have disclosed to me that um, they have been fighting government overreach for years. They could have chosen to go work for the government, you know, but as I said before, your choices have consequences, mm -hmm. you know. At the end of the day, I think they just could not live with themselves if they have to defend a government's overreach you know, position like this. And so, so our lawyers it's, it's encouraging uh, Peter, and it's refreshing to know that lawyers like Peter Gall exist. Yes. So Peter Gall and his firm, um, as well as Mark Nora and his firm, are our two legal firms working together mm -hmm. um, to represent us. And they've done a great job. Well, that is that is uh, and they sound like an exception. I, I believe so. I believe so. Well, uh, tell me a little bit more. You, you are uh, speaking on behalf, or this battle is on behalf of Canadian um, Society for Science and Ethics, CSSEM. Hmm. Uh, tell me about how the fundraising is going and what the costs have have been for this case, this judicial review. Right. Thanks again for you know, bringing that forward. Um, this case is the, the most important case for healthcare in BC. Um, 
we are really are at the tip of the spear. We represent the doctors and the nurses who have been unjustly fired um, for basically um, believing in our own autonomy. Um, and so we have um, been very fortunate to have a very capable team of lawyers who are very expensive because the other thing that I come to realize, in fact, you get what you pay for. And the lawyers have capped their fees at 530,000. We're now down to our last $25,000 that we need to raise. And so um, if any of your viewers um, feel moved to you know, donate to us, we certainly would appreciate it. Please visit our website, that's cwsem.org, where there's a donation portal. Yeah, and all donations will be gratefully received. Thank you very much. Well, I think people need to be reminded as well, you're a group of people that have not been working for the last two, two and a half years. So you have no That's income, right. and yet you're embroiled in this legal battle, which is That's expensive. Right. Oh. And I think you mentioned to me how much the lawyers had said it cost them per day to be in court. Yeah, it's um, it was, I was shocked. Um, they, they said that one day in court cost $10,000. So we have been in court um, for 10 days. Mm -hmm. um, no, uh, one day in court cost $20,000. And so we have been in court for 10 days. And so that's $200,000. Now, I imagine that fee covers all of the costs um, preceding or inclusive of all the prep time that goes into it. Um, but then you actually have the lawyers who are physically sitting there for the entire day. So it's, it's, it's very, very expensive. Wow. Now, during this judicial review, I think just this week, mm -hmm. BC Public Workers launched a suit against the BC government on the issue of vaccine mandates. Right. Do you have any comment on that? I found it to be fascinating that yet another big case, I mean, this is a large one. Right. Um, you know, Every time someone files a suit now against the government, I cheer them on. I, you know, good for you, you know, for standing up and doing something. What the government has done is just, um, it's complete overreach. And it's very unfortunate that um, a large number of us did not stand up at the beginning and then none of this would have gone forward, you know. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you know, it's good that people have now decided to stand up and are coming forward. Um, I wish them well, you know, I know that there are other um, court cases going on. My only um, comments would be, it'll be a tough fight. You're up against the government lawyers. They're not gonna argue truth. Whatever science you're gonna produce, they're gonna try and discredit it. Um, you need to be ready for that. Um, it is, it's kind of a roller coaster type of ride, you know, when you're you're up one moment and then you're down another moment. But you know, there's a lot of emotions going through you. Um, our case has been predicated on a very very narrow um, approach to it, since we were looking for a very small specific target, the issue of reasonableness here, mm -hmm. um, to break this open. Okay, theirs is um, is a class action lawsuit probably um, requesting um, payment of lost wages, et cetera. We have not requested that. Mm -hmm. That is going to be a, a tougher fight uh, because 
um, what you're going to, uh, because how the government lawyers will probably interpret that is that they will then take you back not to Omicron when uh, everything was laid bare, the fact that clearly the vaccines had no benefit, but they will probably take you back to the period of Delta at the very onset of it, when number one, not much information was known, and number two, the early reports regarding Delta, in fact, suggested that vaccination was the way to go. Those were the early reports. And so this, that will be, it's a good fight. It's a tough fight. Um, and I wish them well. It sounds as though vaccine injury is going to enter into the conversation as well. I, I hope so. We, we did not introduce this. And I know that a number of people who have been following this from the outside, not knowing our case, were disappointed that our lawyers did not introduce this whatsoever. Hmm. I think the issue of vaccine injury is very, number one, it's real. Uh, number two, it's very broad. Uh, and number three, that's a very tough fight um, mm -hmm. when you're talking about vaccine injuries. Mm -hmm. you know? But I think that the longer um, anyone waits before they put forward a case, the better it'll be for them because it becomes more and more obvious that so many people have been harmed uh, by the vaccines. Yes. Uh, another question I have for you is, is the new... Uh the situation in Texas with the Attorney General oh. of Texas filing a lawsuit against Pfizer suggesting that the vaccine has was misrepresented, 95% efficacy when in fact the relative risk reduction was less than 1% and after the rollout of the vaccine, the death rate went up. Do you have any comment on that? I think this is um, in the U.S. I haven't heard of a case like this, but it could it could be interesting. Um, yes, I've heard of this case, and I think that's very interesting. And I think that there are going to be more and more lawsuits against the big against big pharma. Um, this case is is interesting because um, number one, a lot of this data. Um, you know, that uh, Ken Paxson is, is talking about that the actual benefits of the of, of vaccination was less than 1%, um, and there are risks related to deaths, is in fact, or has been um, known um, ever since the first publication at the end of 2020, mm -hmm. um, in that even though it was known, it, it would it took. It probably would take somebody with a little bit um, more of a, a medical scientific background to realize that when, let's say, Pfizer was talking about an efficacy of 94%, they were really describing relative risk reduction, which is not what you're going to tell a patient. Relative risk reduction is a comparison of the effectiveness of different vaccines. That's the only time you can really use it. If you have an, uh, a... a patient in front of you, and the patient asks a simple question, well, doc, if I take this, what is the benefit to me? That is not a relative risk reduction answer. That is an absolute risk reduction answer. And the absolute risk reduction could have been calculated easily from that paper if you knew how to add and subtract the numbers. The absolute risk reduction in the Pfizer paper was 0.7%. 
And so I will look him back in the eye and say, um, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, if you decide to take this vaccine, it will increase your uh, risk of not getting COVID by 0.7%. But your risk of not getting COVID only refers to risk of serious COVID. Doesn't talk about you dying from COVID, yeah. which is far smaller, right? So that, that, in fact, that's the real number. You know, and in addition to that, um, there was a, a lot of fudging of the data as to the number of deaths. Um, there were deaths uh, in the early Pfizer reports, um, but more and more, there's so much bad evidence coming out about the vaccines, how the vaccine development was rushed. There's contamination with DNA. Um, you know, they had denied it. Um, I think that possibly Health Canada may end up being sued because Health Canada recognized that, in fact, there was DNA contamination, but they said, oh, it's not much. You know, so I think that Health Canada down the road is going to get sued by a bunch of really angry Canadians, and I think they deserve to be, be sued. Why, know, is that, supposed... why, why is that such a problem, having DNA contamination in a vaccine? Oh, well, number one, um, you're, no vaccine contains DNA. The DNA makes the spike protein. What Pfizer and all the pharma companies said that their um, vaccine was based not on DNA, but on RNA. RNA, one copy, only makes one copy of the protein, which is a spike protein. So even though it's toxic by itself because it has your cells manufacturing that spike protein and the way your body responds to it is that it destroys your own cells, right? And then and that's how it develops its memory by destroying your cells that have been making the spike protein. When you have DNA and your DNA to make the spike protein becomes incorporated into your cells, your cells will continue to make spike protein. And as your cells subsequently divide and become daughter cells, they will then continue to make spike protein. And so the issue of um, autoimmunity comes into this. You know, a lot of autoimmune diseases will be as a result of this. There are a whole bunch of things, especially, you know, from people who um, may have accepted the government's version that you need a bunch of boosters. Each time you're going to get boosted, you're going to get sick. You're going to get sick and you're going to probably, there's a chance that it, things will be worse than just getting sick because there's more and more evidence coming out of how this will affect your overall immunity, your immune tolerance, um, which allows for autoimmunity, but also the uh, ability to identify, let's say, uh, cancerous cells and destroy it. And now by repeated jabbing, you have you would have lost this. You know, the idea of turbo cancers, increased mortality, especially in young people, uh, we did not discuss this at all. Uh, but um, this is all in the background. And I think that this is all going to come forward. There's going to be a massive a number of lawsuits against government agencies, um, you know, not only in BC, I think throughout throughout the world. Um, our, our government certainly let us down, both our federal and provincial governments certainly let us down. Um, and, um, you know, if they are uh, going to allow the pharma companies to have immunity from prosecution, then they themselves need to be prosecuted. Um, well, Canada Health has even acknowledged that they hid this from Canadians. That's true. That's true. That's why I say that, that Canada Health may may get sued. Yeah. It's so criminal. 
What do you think the consequence of all of this will be on regular childhood vaccines? Do you think that people are now beginning to feel leery? Well, you know, I must say that um, prior to this, I, I never considered that as an issue. But I would say COVID has now laid bare all of the fact that now that we're looking at vaccinations, let's look at all the vaccinations, you know, and I would say some certain books such as Turtles All the Way Down have really opened my eyes as to how childhood vaccines are developed, that they lack a placebo in their controlled trials. Um, and the actual benefits of it is really quite questionable. Can so you, I, I can think you, that- Can you explain that? Um, the placebo, there is no placebo. Explain oh, okay. to a lay person, what does that mean? Okay, so in order for this to be done, um, typically what you would do is you would do a randomized controlled trial. And so what is being compared is that you'll be uh, comparing your experimental vaccine that you have developed versus a placebo. And the best placebo would be saline. What has happened, and I would say um, all of the previous childhood vaccines that have been developed, there has never been a comparison against a saline placebo. The comparisons by and large, when a, a pharma company wants to say, I've got a new vaccine, they're comparing against the old vaccine. They're calling that the placebo. The old vaccine already has side effects. So if the new vaccine side effects are no worse than the old vaccine, then they're calling it safe. That is, that's remarkable. I mean, that's fraud. Yeah. That's fraud. That's, but, well, it, 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 is, it is and it isn't. It's only fraud if you get caught, right? That's and remarkable, so, though. I don't correct, think most correct. parents know that. I, I, I bet they don't. Their but, child you know, is being injected with something that has never been tested. Never been fully tested. That is correct. That's remarkable. And, so, and they, they should go get that book, Turtles All the Way Down. Have um, you, uh, if you had grandchildren, would you say to your children, stop? Well, I, um, I do have grandchildren. Yes. And I've been trying to tell my son and his his wife, you know, you really should reconsider yes. childhood vaccines and things. But, you know, it's it's always difficult as a grandparent to tell your kids, the, the parents, you know, and I, I, I hope that they will listen to, you know, reason. I hope they'll, you know, um, consider it. Um, because uh, now that's all laid bare, it, it's, uh, it's, it's shocking. It absolutely oh. is. Well, every study that I see that's comparing vaccinated to unvaccinated children, especially in some of those unique communities like the Amish, mm -hmm. they have no incidence of autism, ADHD, asthma, allergies. The list goes on and on. It does. It and does. there's a lot of physicians who have pulled out. The doctor in Oregon, uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Paul... Alan, is it, Paul? I think so. I think so. That, right. you know, that was a very, very interesting 20-year retrospective study. Mm -hmm. And the, the stark contrast between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated patients, children, was remarkable. Yes, um, yes I, definitely. I wish I had not vaccinated my children, but I never even thought about it. I, I would say that none of us ever thought about it. We all thought that this was, you know, this was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I trusted the nurses. I trusted the doctors. And I guess in some form, I was in autopilot. I just 
never questioned. And I never heard anyone else questioning it. Right. But now, no more. I don't think I'll ever have a vaccine again, even for travel. I've taken so many vaccines for travel purposes to third world countries. I will right. never again. Mm -hmm. so vaccines mm -hmm. to me have been, um, <laughs> this whole incident with, with the COVID era has really destroyed my confidence in all vaccines. Well, yeah, I think it goes further than that. I think that a lot of people are, um, they don't trust the doctors anymore, right? As a result of this, we don't trust, certainly don't trust government um, and a lot of things we do. And, you know, people are just questioning everything, which I think is is good. I think it's, it's right. Um, you know, um, for those who basically say that, you know, please look after me, um, you know, I'm a good citizen, I'm a good person, I pay you tax money to look after me, to pro provide for, you know, shelter, a place for for me to make a living, this type of thing, you know, that all has been shattered. Yes. Um, well, this has been very, very interesting, Dr. Yorkshung. I really appreciate your time. And I really hope that you are back in your role as a vascular surgeon at Vancouver General Hospital. I hope that you can resume your position at UBC as a professor of surgery in the medical school at UBC. And I hope that all of you as a group are back working again. Uh, I, I'm so sorry you all have had to go through this, but I, I appreciate your time in explaining the intricacies of this legal judicial review. Um, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. There's nothing more um, than what our members would rather have than, than to, to have the ability to go back to work. I think that, you know, um, medicine is a calling. And I think that um, we're not done yet. Um, we we want to continue to serve. Yes. Well, we expect that there'll be uh, a decision made by the judges or the judge in January. What are you expecting? I'm expecting um, probably late January. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll be sitting on pins and needles waiting for this outcome. So thank right. you so much. I hope that you have a lovely Christmas and uh, we'll talk after the decision comes out. That'd be great. Yes, that All would right. be very interesting to do a kind of a final update. So thank you again. Perfect. Merry Christmas to you and your family. You too.